If you read a copy of Scripture, you can find John chapter 21. John, the last chapter, chapter 21. As we can continue in our series 500, the story of the Reformation, and the Scripture that set the church free. And you're looking at the passage I just referred to, John chapter 21, all the way down to verse 15, where we read, When they had finished breakfast, this is post-cross, post-resurrection, Jesus proving his, uh, not just uh, his death, of course, which was proven on the cross, but his resurrection. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he said. Jesus, that is, said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, what? Say it. Follow me. If I asked you this morning, what is a Christian? I wonder how you would answer that question. What is a Christian? 500 years ago, the Reformation began when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church and just, he had no idea what this was going to do. The Reformation put the Bible back into the hands of God's people and clarified salvation through the likes of Luther himself and John Calvin, clarifying that salvation was by grace through faith alone. But there would soon, I mean very soon, come a group thereafter of fervent followers who would, while agreeing with those original Reformation tenets that it was the Bible alone through Faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God. They would agree with all those solas. They would actually ask another question. They would ask, how is salvation evidenced in your life? They didn't want to know. They didn't want to hear you say, I'm saved. They would want to know, hear, and see, I follow Jesus. It was six years into the Reformation itself. Bibles now open. Theological debates were hot, spreading new understandings of the great doctrines of the faith and its practices. In fact, Martin Luther, if you'll recall, went into seclusion for a little over a year in Wartburg Castle. And while he was in seclusion, the Reformation was just exploding. In fact, by the time he came out of seclusion, he himself was surprised at all the changes that were taking place. Priests. And nuns were getting married. He himself would get married three years later. Pastors were shedding the priestly garments 
the Mass was no longer being looked upon as a sacrament. And the subject of baptism, its purpose, mode, and those eligible to be baptized was up to debate. In fact, in 1523, two stalwarts of the faith were standing by a moat in Zurich. Remember where it was they were standing by a moat. Holdrick Zwingli, the follower of Luther, who challenged Luther on the Lord's table to adopt a belief system that we're more akin to. And Balthazar Hubmeyer, not, not hardly a household name, were discussing the subject of baptism. Both of them were Christ followers. Both of them former priests who'd left uh, the Catholic Church. Both of them believing the Bible was their only authority, and both of them acknowledging that infant baptism didn't hold any water, no pun intended. So with that in mind, it's almost unimaginable what would take place five years later as Balthazar Hubmeyer followed his conviction of what the Scripture taught on baptism. He embraced a believer's baptism. He followed that while Zwingli didn't. And five years later, Balthazar Hubmeyer would be stretched on the rack. Think Braveheart. And eventually martyred with the his old friend, Holdrick Zwingli, giving complicit, having knowledge, being open to it, actually agreeing to his death. If Martin Luther is the father of modern day, the modern-day Lutheran church, Holdrick Zwingli is the father of the modern-day Reformed church. And while Luther and Calvin and John Knox are, are are household names to anybody calling themselves an evangelical with a semblance of history in their mind. Hubmeyer, Felix Mance, Conrad Grable, and Michael Sattler are not. But the men I just mentioned were arguably as brave or braver than the more notable figures. They would be associated with a group of followers who would be persecuted by virtually every other stream of Christendom. Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and Reformers sorely persecuted this group of Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, missions-minded, passionately obedient followers of Jesus, called by their detractors, the Radicals, theologically known as the Anabaptist. The Anabaptist movement was actually a sub-movement to the Reformation, and it was a movement every bit as big. I'll prove it to you with this one thought. The church around the world to this day, including Sailorville Church, owes a debt of gratitude to all the Reformers, but to the Anabaptists for the, from a political perspective because, because of the freedom that the Anabaptists brought to the freeing the church from government. They would, they would be the, the originators of the free church movement. Don't think evangelical free church has nothing to do with that denomination. Just every evangelical church is, a, is today a free church. 
Uh, Think autonomy, free from the entanglements of government, free from the entanglements of a hierarchy whereby they have to answer to, to bishops and cardinals and popes. At the time of the Reformation, the church... Listen, this is hard for you to grab, but you ought to know this. At the time of the Reformation, the church and the state were virtually indistinguishable. The state was involved even in discipline of errant church members, if you can believe it. Hence, irrespective of whether one was regenerate, the government councils held spiritual power and jurisdiction over everybody. Again, as the Bible was now open and the study of the Scripture and interpretation, godly men like Mance and Grable began to see the Scripture taught a separation between the church and the state. With such text as the one you're looking at, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Grable and Mance were two of those men who saw this very clearly. And the Anabaptists, indoctrinated it. They were disciples of Zwingli. But they were frustrated because while Zwingli had separated from the Catholic Church as Luther did, and he'd even separated from Luther's understanding of of the Lord's table being somewhat sacramental, he still wasn't going far enough. If you can just see, that's why I tell you not to be too judgmental of the past because everything was brand new to these people. With the Bible being open, now it's all making sense. And so Zwingli was not willing to, to, to disassociate himself from the state. And so Mance and Grable frustrated with them. They separated from him. In addition, their study revealed a glaring omission in Scripture of what the church had been practicing for centuries. Namely, infant baptism. And while Zwingli himself, remember the conversation with Hubmeyer earlier, didn't believe in infant baptism from a scriptural perspective, he nevertheless held on to it and later vociferously defended it. Roman Catholics and Lutherans to this day believe in infant baptism, sins are forgiven and faith is imputed to the child. Did you know that? One of my great frustrations that I have is how, how low on the totem pole doctrine is to people when they go to a church. They're looking at the music. They're looking at people. They're looking at organization. They're looking at programs and not looking at the belief system. Zwingli, to his credit, rejected infant baptism for salvation, but he retained infant baptism, declaring, and he's the one who came up with the doctrine, okay, well, it doesn't save the baby. It does make the baby part of the covenant community. Ask me what that means. I don't know. And I've been studying it for years. It makes no sense. As circumcision was to an Israelite, Baptism was to the child of Christian parents, so the argument would go. There was only one problem with this teaching. While it had been going on for centuries, it wasn't taught in the Bible. Manson Grable discovered 
Not only the absence of infant baptism, but the clear presence in the Bible of believers, or what they would call confessors' baptism. And by the way, Philip Schaff, who's arguably the most renowned Reformed theologian, believes in infant baptism, uh, and historian, by the way, has stated very clearly there is no evidence of infant baptism in the first three centuries. So just think about that. So as I go for an infant in our, in our midst here today, oh, it just happens to be my grandbaby. <laughs> Hello, Zion. You know, it occurred to me, if I grab just any baby here, there's a one in ten chance it's going to be one of my own. <laughs> well, infant baptism was virtually unheard of in those, in, uh, until the third and fourth centuries. It, listen to this. It was the only kind of baptism practiced up to the Reformation. Just think about that for a moment. That's 1,100 years of infant baptism. That's a lot of tradition. That's a lot of time. So the Anabaptists were flying in the face of both tradition and time. But they had an ace in the hole. The word of God. Let me show you some scriptures here. We just Here's one. There, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Notice the sequence. Make disciples... Then baptize them. Go to the next verse, if you would. Acts chapter 2. Those who gladly received the word that Peter was preaching of the gospel were what? Say it. They received the word, and then they got baptized. In chapter 8, you have Simon, who arguably really wasn't a Christian, but the sequence is still right. Even Simon himself believed. And after being what? Notice again the sequence. And then this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 35, where it says... And Philip opened his mouth, beginning of this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now they went down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They went down to the water, he got baptized. Once again, see the sequence all the way through. In fact, there's more reference to this, but just one more. Chapter 18 and verse 8 says this. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, watch this, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and that's going to be important here, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were what? The sequence is always the same. It's always the same. Reformed churches today will argue the household baptisms are their are the reason why they baptize little babies here, okay? So the argument is this. You see households getting baptized in the Bible, and surely those households have, all have babies, right? That's the argument. It's an argument from silence. And uh, you have the household of Stephanus getting baptized in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and some of the ones I just referenced. Uh, but those are, just passing, those are just passing comments of the households getting baptized. There is a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 16 which basically gives us a, a better light, shed some whole light on this, okay? But, and, and, but first, a story before we put the scripture up. When I was uh, uh, in the, just getting in the ministry, I was having some Bible studies with some Reformed people. They were really nice people, and they came to trust Christ as their Savior. And so we started talking about how important it was for them to identify with Jesus, and they said, well, we have. We've been baptized as babies. I said, well, you know, I showed from Scripture, like the ones you just saw, that that didn't hold water. And, uh, 
So uh, they said, well, yeah, but what about the household baptisms? So I took a chance. I went outside of the house that day with the gentleman who had just come to Christ. And I, I walked outside and I said, do you know everybody in your neighborhood? And there happened to be eight houses that are, were around his. He goes, yeah, I know every one of them. I said, how many babies are in those homes? Like I said, I took a chance. What if he said, well, every one of them has a baby. <laughs> Argument gone. There wasn't a baby in any of those eight homes. Not one. I said, now let me get this straight. You live in a neighborhood, you know everybody in the neighborhood, and there's not a baby in any of those homes. And you're going to assume there was a baby in these? Look at the passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 16. This is very, very powerful. This is after the Philippian jailer uh, comes to Christ. Acts chapter 16. I think we have the Scripture to put up, do we not? Yeah. <laughs> and so here's what it says. About, uh, what verse are we at here? This is what you get when you're holding a baby. Uh, verse 30, yeah, okay. So, it's, so it says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the jailer. He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the greatest question. That's the greatest question in the Bible. Here's the greatest answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and your household. And, the, and now watch this. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour that night, washed their wounds, and baptized we were baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them to his house and set food before them, and they rejoiced along with the entire household. Watch this, that he had believed in God. So notice what happened. Okay, hang in there, Zion. We're almost done here, okay, but Let go of my tie. There we go. Okay, buddy. So imagine, I'm preaching to you. I'm preaching to you. Are you going to believe? Are you going to repent and believe the gospel? Now, you can be saved, but you can't, you can't repent. You've got nothing to repent of. Well, you are a sinner. Yes, and you do need to be saved. But it's not possible for you to repent, is it? Now, is it possible? Could God... <laughs> Could God choose to save a baby on a, without, any, without repentance and faith? Of course he could. But the Bible does tell us there's a requirement of repentance and faith. Now, God's the one who makes all that happen. We get that. And the real question is, what happens to these babies? What happens to these babies when they die? Or if they die? Listen. Any literal, consistent hermeneutic, that means your interpretive approach to the Bible, of Scripture will reveal there is absolutely no justification for baptizing babies. Today, Bible-believing churches that baptize babies are sowing confusion into their people. Virtually any and every argument I have ever heard on infant baptism becomes a hopeless muddle of disconnected words and doublespeak. Our very own Pastor Kurt uh, spent time talking with one of the most prominent Lutheran pastors in the United States of America in the fastest growing Lutheran church per capita in the United States of America, right here in the greater metro. Talked about, uh, about infant baptism. He was completely confused, and the only thing he could say to Kurt was, well, Luther said something happened then. Is that going to be my basis? So when a baby does die, this is the fear, ba baptizing baby. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us to. Why can't we just trust God? 
for the soul of that child. Listen to what, remember what Abraham said to God when he was going back and forth with him in, in Genesis 18? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is what? Right. Won't God in his righteousness always do what is right? Remember when the children of Israel are coming into the promised land, Deuteronomy 139, God says that they're going to die off because remember they remember the, 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 ten, uh, the ten were unfaithful. They didn't want to believe God going in there and the whole wicked generation was going to die off in the wilderness. But God says, but your little ones who you said would be a prey, they will enter the land because they had no knowledge of good or evil. Have you ever read that? And then you have the, the account of David who, because of his adultery with Bathsheba, the, the baby ends up dying. Remember that through that whole passionate account where he's pleading for the, the life of the child, he never pleads for the soul of the child because when the child dies, according to First, Second Chronicles rather, chapter 12, he says, look, I'll return to him. He cannot return to me. There's confidence, wouldn't you say? Let me tell you, those babies that die before they ever have the opportunity to trust Christ, they are safe in heaven. You can believe that. Now back to the history. Because these men, these godly men, were convinced that baptism should take place after salvation, a dozen of them met, met in the home of Felix Mance and were baptized. They baptized one another. And thus the Anabaptist movement was born. The rebaptizers, that's what Anna means, rebaptized. That's what they were called. They were given these names. The rebaptizers were called radicals because they were proposing, believing, and practicing things different than the church had ever seen before. Uh, for instance, professing that the true church consisted only of the redeemed, that is, saved people. You already believe that, don't you? Not if you're reformed. Go back, please. Professing that the true church consisted only of the redeemed. That is, saved people. Does the scripture say that? Yes, here's the scripture. It says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were what? Being saved. What number? The number of the church. God added to the church those who were being saved. The other thing Anabaptists believed was this. Only those openly professing faith in Jesus should be baptized. This was, again, 1,100 years of baptizing babies. And thirdly, the church and state were utterly and separate entities. This was, this was as radical as you could possibly get. And thus the free church movement was born. No wonder Lutzer says, Irvin Lutzer says, no other event so completely symbolized a break with Rome than the Anabaptist movement. While it's true there were extreme sects of, of uh, Anabaptist, you know, with their pacifism and, and refusal to even be a part of government, these were intensely passionate, evangelistic, godly people who blazed a trail for the modern evangelical movement, and they blazed that trail in their blood. Reformed, Lutheran, and Catholics all opposed the Anabaptists. A movement that was exploding in some areas would be met by powerful opposition. In fact, in Zurich, the very place where uh, Hubmeyer and 
Zwingli met by the moat discussing the whole business of infant baptism, both rejected it. There would be a decree handed down by the city council, of course, not the church because they were together. Here's the decree, quote, that no one in town, country, and domain, whether man, woman, or girl, shall, in, shall henceforth baptize another. Whoever hereafter baptizes someone will be apprehended by our lords and according to this present decree be drowned without mercy. Their argument was the punishment for a second baptism is a third. That was what, that, that was what, and the first victim was Felix Mance, a disciple of Holtrick Zwingli, who would be tied up and thrown in the Limit River and drowned with Holtrick Zwingli standing by saying, he wanted to be baptized, we'll baptize him. They were literally hunted down. And gave no resistance. By the thousands they were drowned, burned, beheaded, and stretched on the rack. As Timothy George, the historian, said, more Anabaptist Christians were murdered after the Reformation than Christians who died in the early persecutions of Rome. Wow. Okay. What do we do with all this history? I, I just want to challenge you based on the passage I just read you at the very beginning. Here is... Jesus challenging Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, 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 I love you. Then follow me. Church, let's recommit ourselves to a spirit-empowered radicalism exemplified by the Anabaptist with a radical commitment to Jesus Christ. Where is this radical commitment today? The Anabaptists would not ask you, are you saved? They would ask you, are you a follower of Jesus? And if you're a follower of Jesus, have you, have you done what the Bible says? Have you publicly identified with him in believers, confessors, baptism? Have you done that? And it wouldn't be enough. They would say, if you're going to be committed to Jesus Christ, you should continually follow him. So my question to you is, are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you identified with him in believer's baptism since being saved? And what does your life presently look like? Does it presently look like you're a follower of Jesus? These would be the questions the Anabaptists would ask. Let's recommit ourselves to a radical commitment to Scripture. They were radically committed to the Word of God. Willing to die. I, just the other day I was at the fitness club, and ran into a young man who's been kind of on again, off again here at Sailorville, came to Christ three or four years ago, and actually, actually was an alcoholic of sorts and got rid of alcohol after he heard a message I preached about a year ago. It was a great conversation we went back and forth in. And I noticed he's looking good, looking ripped out, you know, real trim. I said, man, I said, have you lost weight? Yeah, I've lost 40 pounds. And by the way, he gave me permission to share this. I said, man, you look great. I said, how's your time in the Word? He's, oh, it's terrible. I hardly ever read my Bible. I said, dude, you're, you're fat inside. You're building up all kinds of spiritual cholesterol. You've got to become radically committed to the Word of God. And some of you need to as well. 
You can't remember the last time you picked up the Bible, and for some of you, it's just sort of haphazard. It's sort of every once in a while. How about daily? How about radically committing ourselves to the, to the Word of God because it's the Word from God? Let's recommit ourselves to a commitment to missions. Did you know that the Anabaptists were the very first missionaries? To the Anabaptists, it wasn't just the pastors, it wasn't just the chucks, it wasn't just, it was, everybody was a missionary. Everybody was expected to preach the gospel. In fact, some of the children of the Anabaptists a couple hundred years later were the Moravians. The Moravians came to know Jesus uh, as their savior and they were radically committed to missions. It was the Wesley boys, John and Charles Wesley, who were saved. They were missionaries. They weren't converted. They were going across the sea. They hung out with these Moravians. They were so convicted of their sins, they got saved. Did you know that in the evangelical church in the 1700s, one in every 5,000 people in the evangelical church became missionaries. One in every 5,000. But amongst the Moravians, one in every 70. Church at Sailorville, be an Anabaptist in the sense that you're radically committed to mission, to evangelism, to spreading the story of Jesus Christ. Radically committed to the to missions and finally radically committed till death do us part. Remember the scripture we put up before from Revelation a couple of weeks back, 12 verse 11. They, they overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. That is, they didn't care if they had to die for it. That was the Anabaptist. One of the most famous Anabaptists was Michael Sattler. Michael Sattler didn't live very long. He, 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 actually, he actually formed, he was, he was one of the originators of the Schleidheim Confession, which basically formed the doctrine of the Anabaptist. He would be arrested and imprisoned. He was so brutally tortured. They literally took hot tongs and ripped flesh from his body. They cut his tongue out. But he had told his followers that he would give them a sign that he had not given up the faith. They took him outside into the public square and tied him to a ladder so they wouldn't have to get too close to the fire and pushed him into the fire. And as he went into the fire, he raised his hand to the followers to say, I have not given up. You know, the problem with messages like this, there's nobody in here under threat of death right now. Last week we buried one of our followers of Christ, Tony Lawrence, who wasn't persecuted for his faith, but he was dying from cancer, throat cancer that did everything but take his complete voice away. But even when he could not talk, he would raise his hand look to heaven and say, all the glory to God. After Jesus confronted Peter and restored him, so to speak, Peter saw his friend John right by him. And so what about him? What about him? You know, is he, what's going to happen to him? 
Jesus looked at Peter and said, whether, whether he lives until I return or not, what is that to you? You follow me. Let's all stand.